All right, let's open our Bibles tonight to Joshua chapter 16. If you remember earlier in the book of Joshua, we, we saw that after the, the tribes had come through the, uh, come through the Jordan and they came into the land, they conquered land in the central part of the country, and then they went uh, and uh, continued conquering in the south, and then they continued their campaign in the northern part of, of Canaan or uh, at, at that time. And, uh, and then after that, th- there, was, there was a time when Joshua began to partition the land according to these 12 tribes. And you recall that before they actually passed over the Jordan River, that there were two and a half tribes that were very comfortable on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan River, specifically Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh. And you can see it. For those of you listening on the radio, this is uh, just a map of the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and so we're looking at uh, Reuben uh, uh, in the south, and then Gad along the Jordan River on the east, and then Manasseh up there by the Sea of Galilee and up, up close to Mount Hermon on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan. And then, uh, and then in the next several chapters, beginning in chapter 14, we see the settlement of those other tribes, I'm sorry, the, uh, yes, the, the other tribes, they, they are going to settle on the western side of the Jordan River. And so, um, actually I told you a lie there, <laughs> sorry about that. In Joshua chapters 14 through 17, that's really where uh, Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh, they, the, those two and a half tribes, they begin to get into their allotments there on the western side. And then later on, uh, probably next week, we'll get into the other seven and a half tribes, where they are going to be. And so this is a really happy time for the children of Israel because they've been through a lot of battle, and now they have got this happy time of just settling in. And you know the feeling when you've been through a battle or maybe you've been through something very difficult in your life and finally you've got respite and there's a a time of rejoicing, maybe a time of uh, celebration. And this is the kind of time that it really is for them. It's a happy time. It's a good time. They've done the major battles. They haven't done all of them. They haven't been completely, they haven't completely eradicated the land like they were commanded to do. They, they got the big centers of people, the big centers of the Canaanites. They, they went in and they destroyed everything, and God did that because of their sin. He had given them several hundred years to repent of their sin. And wouldn't you agree with me that with a person or with a, a group of people, God has the right after years and years and years of them knowing that these things are not right, that sacrificing your children and sexual immorality, these things are wrong. Even within the heart of man, they know it's wrong. And yet they continued and they continued and they continued. And there does come a time, unfortunately, where God says, you've crossed the line. He did that with his own people. You remember in Jeremiah chapter 7 when the the, uh, ten tribes in the north had already been taken captive. And now Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they're coming in on Judah and Benjamin and coming into Jerusalem. And there came a point, and it's recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 7, where Jeremiah starts to pray. And God says, you know what, Jeremiah, don't pray for this people anymore. They've gone too far. They've crossed that Rubicon. There's, there's no going back. It's the point of no return. The enemies are already on their way for judgment. And so there does come that awful time when God does bring judgment. He does bring judgment. 
But I want you to notice something here in uh, Joshua. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 16 tonight, but I want you to look at the very last verse of chapter 15. Turn to chapter 15, if you would, and look at the very last verse, verse 63. And this verse is speaking of Judah, because Judah was one of those tribes uh, that, um, that were given their land. But notice what it says in the very last verse of their uh, of their allotment for land. It says that as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. To this day. And see, let me ask you a question. Was that God's plan for them to dwell with the Canaanites? It wasn't. His plan was for them to destroy them completely. And again, that's really hard in a a culture like today because people will cast judgment upon God for having such an awful thing to do. But again, does he have the right to bring judgment upon a people? He did it to his own people. See, God chastens those whom he loves, and he will destroy those who don't know him that have gone over the line. And he knows when that line is, and he knows when that time is, and his timing is perfect. We ought never to cast judgment upon God for what he does. His ways are right. We may not understand, and we often don't understand, but that's okay because he is God and we are not. And so we have to trust him. We have to trust him. But notice that it says they could not drive them out. And see, this was the predicament of the children of Israel as they would take possession of the land Um, they wouldn't completely drive out the inhabitants that they were supposed to. And and we're going to see this more as we get into the book of Joshua within these next couple of chapters, and specifically when we get to Judges. In fact, uh, it's interesting, if you uh, look over in in Judges chapter 1, verse 21, you don't have to go there, but let me just read it to you. You might just want to mark down the reference, because uh, I'm trying to make a point here, and that is, that, you know, God had uh, told them to drive out the inhabitants, and even when they started to take their individual territories, that they were to finish the job, they were to finish rooting out the enemy in those territories that they were to inherit. But notice what happens, and let me just read to you something in Judges chapter 1, verse 21, because this comes right on the heels of the end of the book of Joshua. We get right into the book of Judges, and it says, But the children of Benjamin... They did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. They they didn't push them out like they were supposed to. God told them to do it. They failed to do it. And see, whenever there's disobedience, there's always consequence. And sometimes those consequences can go on for years and years and years. And my case in point is, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, because the Canaanites weren't driven out in Joshua's time completely, this became a snare to the children of Israel a few hundred years later. So you can see how one act of rebellion and one, 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 a lack on their part would cause them such grief and duress in time. And it doesn't make you wonder how many times we make decisions sometimes and and it's scary to think how one decision not being guided by the Spirit, one decision not being prayed over, how it can yield 
a disastrous result. Sometimes in the near future and sometimes in the far distant future, we see the Bible riddled with these kinds of things. And so it really behooves us then to really consider our own obedience to the Lord in everything and to really pray about everything, to be a, a people of prayer, to be praying about everything that we do. We need to be a people of prayer and not be self-reliant. Well, I've done this before. I know how to handle this, Lord. Well, aren't you going to pray anyway? Maybe there's something else that I want to do today that's going to send you on a different trajectory that you have no idea about, but you know what you're doing, so have fun. See you later. <laughs> it's the way it is sometimes. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, now this is a couple hundred years later, Right? And then, now we're going to see the fruit, what comes to fruition as a result of them not driving out those Canaanites like they were instructed to. Notice, it says, And the king, meaning David, and his men, they went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. So they were mocking David that he couldn't come in because Jerusalem or the Jebusite city of Jerusalem was very difficult to come up against because of how high it was and the ramparts around it or the hills. It's not an easy place. So verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, and that literally means the city of David. And so now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, and here he's got his tongue in his cheek, he shall be chief and captain, and therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. So David went in and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And so you can see that now as they go up into the, the city of Jerusalem where the Jebusites lived, this wouldn't have been a problem had the, the children of Israel back a few hundred years earlier had done what they were supposed to do. Do you see the ramifications of not obeying God? Can you see it? Because I didn't do this, this is the result. Now David's got to fight for this place. He's got to fight. He's got to fight. He's got to drive out the enemy. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, we know who this person was. It says, 1 Chronicles 11 verse 4, it says, David and all Israel went up to Jerusalem, which is Jabus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jabus, you know, again, they mock David. And then David, verse 6, says, Whoever attacks a Jebusite shall be chief and captain. And notice, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first and became chief. In fact, uh, what, what happened was, is Joab went up a shaft. And if you go to Israel with us, which, which you know, it's still possible now. Your time is rapidly running out. But um, uh, if you go to Israel, you can actually see with the shaft that Joab crawled up, and he, he was able to get into the, to Jerusalem without even them knowing it, and that's how they were able to conquer the city uh, very easily. But we'll walk in that Gahon Spring down there in the city of David, right there to the southern part of the Temple Mount, and you'll actually see that shaft. You can actually look up into it. Uh, I remember a couple, about 10 years ago, we were there, and I was in there, and I looked up, and you could see where Joab crawled all the way up. It's really quite impressive. And, and so this is what happened. And so they were able to get into it. But they had to fight for it because the job was not done originally. You know, look with me also at, uh, just really quickly, at Joshua chapter 16. 
I'm just going to mention these. We're going to go over these in a few minutes. But in Joshua chapter 16, verse 10, uh, speaking of Ephraim now. So that was, that was Judah. Now we look at the tribe of Ephraim, and they get into their land. But notice what it says in verse 10 of chapter 16. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Remember that, forced laborers. Hmm, I wonder where they could have got that from. That's a, that's a little hook. We're going to get into it a little bit later. And also look at Joshua chapter 17 and verse 12 and 13. We're going to get into this chapter tonight too, briefly. But notice what it says over in that verse in chapter 12. I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 12. It says, now again, the other half-tribe of Manasseh, they get into their land and they're dwelling in it. But notice what it says. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. But the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong, when the children of Israel grew strong, that they put the Canaanites to forced labor. You might want to underline that. But they did not, they did not utterly drive them out. Do you see that? They did not utterly drive them out. Another indictment, really, a sad story, really, of what happened to the other tribes is recorded for us in Judges chapter 1. You might just want to write this reference down. I'm just going to read it for the sake of time. Judges chapter 1, verses 27 through 35. I'm bringing this up because you're going to see each of the other tribes now getting into their land, and notice what happens. A very similar pattern starts to happen, and we're going to look at the root cause of this, I believe, in a few moments. But it says in verse 27 of Judges chapter 1, However, Manasseh, they didn't drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, of Taanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Leblaim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, For the Canaanites, again, they were determined to dwell in that land, and it came to pass, so when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out. Notice verse 29, nor did Ephraim, another tribe of Israel, nor did they drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun, nor did they drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Naholol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Remember that. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Acho or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab, of Oxzib, of Helba, of Aphek, or Rahab. So the Asherites dwell among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Notice they did not. It's not that they could not. It's that they did not. They did not drive them out. Finally, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. Remember that. They were put under tribute. Where did they learn this from? Hmm. We're going to find out. And the Amorites forced the tribe, the children of Dan, into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Herez and Ajalon and in Shealbaim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, notice they were put under tribute. They were put under tribute. Where did they learn this from? Hmm. <laughs> and then the Lord rebukes them in Judges 2. I'm just going to read the first five verses to you. It says that the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, 
I led you from Egypt and brought you out of the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will, break my, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And this is a, a very stinging rebuke to the children of Israel because God, again, is telling them, you should have done this, but you didn't. You didn't obey my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side. And history proves that that is exactly what happened. In fact, when we read in Judges uh, chapter 1 there in verses uh, 27 through 35 of those different tribes, they didn't drive them out. They didn't drive them out. They didn't drive them out. Instead, they had a better plan. Ah, we'll put them under, well, we'll they'll, they, they'll be our slaves. They'll do things for us. And where did they learn that from? Hmm. <laughs> Therefore, I also said to them, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. And that's exactly what happened. And so it was. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed to the Lord there. Sacrificed to the Lord there. So let's actually... Um, it's a really sad commentary, but you know what? If it, wasn't, if it wasn't the Jewish people, it would have been us. If we were a group of people, if we were all one ethnic group or whatever group it is, it doesn't matter what group it is. It could have been the Germans. It could have been the French. It could have been uh, anybody going through what the children of Israel are going through, and they all would have probably done, given time and circumstance, they would have all done the same thing. And why is that? Because the heart of man is bent on disobedience. The heart of man is bent on doing the opposite of what God tells us to do. Until we are born again, do we realize that there's this cosmic battle going on, and this battle is going on within your own flesh. If you're a born-again believer, didn't Paul say that? He says, why is it that the things that I don't do or the things that, uh, or the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do do, and the things that I do do are the things that I shouldn't do, or something like that. It, it, he, he, was, he was conflicted because he realized that there were these two natures battling for supremacy and dominance in his life. He knew that he was born with an old nature, and therefore he needed to be born again. And the Spirit of God comes into him and is like that, is like that, that cap that gets put on top of a seething pot of stew. <laughs> it's on the boil, and you just put that lid on it. And that new nature that we have has the ability to squash out that old nature. But we have the crazy ability to say, Lord, open the pot a little bit. I'm going to open the pot a little bit. And you pull the pot out and you let some of that nastiness spill out into your life. And God's saying, oh, my child, why are you doing this? Why are you continuing to let the things that have plagued your life, why are you letting these things dominate you when I've given you the Spirit of God, I've given you the very my very spirit to convict you and to give you the power to resist it. But why won't you resist it? Why are you so easily caving in all the time? Why are you no longer fighting at all? When one little arrow just flies by your head, you cave in. Why? Why don't you get on your knees and fight this? I've given you everything. All you have to do is get on your knees and trust me, and I will fight for you. So as we get into verse or chapter 16, we get into the lot. They were going to cast lots. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that God knew 
when men would cast lots, they would put in uh, some kind of uh, maybe a name on a rock, and they'd put it in a bag, and they would switch up the bag and, and shake it up, and then somebody would reach in and pull out the name of a tribe. And then there'd be another bag that would have different allotments of land, and then they would shake that up, and they'd pull out another rock, and th- the tribe would get that part of, part of land. See, God is in control of the lot, of, of those chance things that you and I, unfortunately, because of man, we need to do things fairly. And the only way we can do that is by casting lots. And that's what they did back this t- at this time. But God says, I want you to cast lots, but I know the outcome. But you need to cast lots so there won't be any strife among you, because that's just the way man is. And so the lot fell, verse 1, to the children of Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho. Now this, this is going to read pretty quickly, by the Jericho to the waters. And you can always look on the screen and you can kind of see the, the allotment of land that was given to Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh, remember, are the sons of Joseph or the children of Joseph. So when you ever see, you see the children of Joseph in the scripture, it's referring to Ephraim and Manasseh. So... The lot fell to the children of Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. Then went out from Bethel to Luz, passed along to the border of the Archites at Ataroth, and went down westward to the boundary of the Jephelites. I know I'm not pronouncing these names really well. (laughs) As far as the boundary of lower Beth Horon to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. And so the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, they took their inheritance. So that's if you look up on the screen, you can see on the on the western side of the Jordan River, right there at the bottom, at the northern tip of the Dead Sea, all the way up uh, about two thirds of the way up the Jordan River, you see that Ephraim is in, this, in, the, in, the, in the south, and then Manasseh is just north of that. And so then in verse 5, he really gets into just the laying out of the, the, the precise border of Ephraim. And it says, the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was this. The border of their inheritance on the east side was Adaroth Adar, as far as upper Beth Horon. And the border went out toward the sea on the north side of Michmethah, then the border went around eastward to Teanoth Shiloh and passed by it on east of Genoha. And then it went down from Genoha to Ataroth and Nearah, reached to Jericho and came out at the Jordan. It'd be interesting if you were able to take a, a really highly detailed map. You could find these towns. Um, this map really here doesn't really do it, uh, does, does it justice or anything, but it's a, a general map. But it says in verse 8, the border went from Tapua westward to the brook Cana, and it ended at the sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim, according to their families. The separate cities of the children of Ephraim, among their inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. And notice verse 10, and they did not, notice, underline this, they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Circle, asterisk, underline verse 10, because this is, inc- this is uh, something that we have to take a look at. Notice the language. It wasn't that they could not drive them out, but they did not. They did not. You remember in Joshua 15, verse 63, it says that they could not. But now in this verse, it says that they did not. It was in, th- th- There's a point when God... You know, uh, there's a point when we have failed to be obedient to him. There comes a point where we get into such a, a trouble that there, re- there seems to be no way out. 
and therefore they could not. But it's not because God gave up on them. It's because they would not earlier, but now they could not. But now notice here in verse 10 that they did not. So it's, it's not because they couldn't, it's because they didn't. Do you see the difference? Could not means... You know, we just couldn't because we, we, weren't, uh, we weren't obedient to the Lord. Now we're caught in this thing and there's no way out. It just seems like there's no way out. But others, it'll say that they did not. There was an act of the will involved. They, they chose rather to put them in forced labor because they could do things for them. Why should we kill them? I mean, that's so harsh. You know, God is just so mean. You know, let's just, let's not kill them. I don't like doing that. Who likes to do that? Does anybody like to do that? There should be nobody here who likes to kill anybody, right? But again, is it my thoughts or is it God's thoughts? God says to destroy every living thing. So do I think, "Mm, I don't think so. I'm going to do my own thing. And God says, okay. There's consequences. And we've already looked at one of them in 2 Samuel, right? And there are many others consequences for these things. But within the commandment of God is also the enablement to accomplishment. You remember the old adage, what God orders, he pays for? What God orders, he pays for. When he commands anyone to do anything, that includes the enablement to perform whatever that is. Even when you're not feeling up to par, even when you're feeling like you, cannot, you can't do it because you're not gifted, you're not talented enough, you don't have the, the money to do it, it doesn't matter. All these are excuses, but when God says, this is what I want you to do, do it in faith and watch what he does, and your jaw is going to hit the ground because chances are it's going to be at a time when you feel like you cannot do it. You're going to feel, like, you're going to feel insecure. You're going to feel maybe even under attack from the devil or demonic, you know, oppression. You're going to feel like you got no money, or maybe you don't have any money, and God's told you to do something. When he tells you to do something, just do it and see what he does. And let the results be up to him. Let the results be up to him. In Exodus chapter 23, God told them that he would drive them out. Just write this reference down. I'm going to read it to you. In Exodus 23, beginning in verse 20, the Lord speaks to them, and this is way before the, uh, or, you know, as they were coming out of, uh, when they were in the desert. The Lord says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, of this angel, and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name, notice, is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down down to their gods nor serve them nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. Notice, as a result, of the obedience, God is going to bless them. And see, there, is, there are blessings for obedience. There always is. When you're obedient, God will bless you. If you're disobedient, God is not going to bless you necessarily. He can if he chooses, but if you're walking in disobedience, you're going to be without the blessing of God. You're going to find your life a shambles. It doesn't mean that your life's going to be roses even when you are in the will of God, because sometimes there's real trials when you're walking in the will of God. But you know, you know the difference. Because when you know that you're doing the right thing, trouble's going to come. 
but trouble comes when you're not doing the right thing. But the one, in one situation, God is with you, and the other one, he is not. You're all alone on this one, right? He says, no one of you shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. And he did that with Sion, King uh, Sihon, a uh, king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, there on the west or the eastern side of the Jordan. He did that to them. And even Rahab the harlot in Jericho made mention, they all fear you. We all fear you because we've heard of what God has done in the life of Israel, and we are scared to death. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canite, the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from you in one year, lest the land become desolate. But then in verse 30, I'm just going to go on here. Little by little, I will drive them out before you. And I will set your bounds, verse 31, from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert of the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Notice the confidence that God has in his plan, even with his people. He has the confidence because he knows what's best. And he's going to be with them if they're obedient. See, there's the key. Obedience, God with you. Disobedience, God absent. You know, you may be a born-again believer, but God is not obligated to walk with you when you're walking in disobedience. It's, it's a difficult pill, isn't it? But I've, I've known that in my own life, and perhaps you did too. But you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they... Here's the problem. Here's the reason for all of this. That they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. That's what it's all about. That's why you had to, they had to go in and destroy everything. Their time had come. The point of no return had come. They did not repent. For hundreds of years, this went on, and God says, it's time. And why? Lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it shall surely be a snare for you. And was it a snare to the children of Israel? By not driving out the inhabitants? By not doing it? They did not drive out the inhabitants, but they made them laborers. It sounds very humane, but it's actually the most deadly thing they could have done by disobeying what God had told them to do. Again, write this reference down, but I'm going to read it to you for the sake of time. Numbers chapter 33, beginning in verse 50. And I'm going to paraphrase these next five verses. Uh, six verses. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains, and this is right before they went into the promised land. They were still hanging out there on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, Moses was still alive, and of course Joshua was there. But it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed over, the Jordan, into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you. There's the command again. This is what I'm, I'm going to do. And, and in verse 54, he says, And you shall divide the, lot, the land by lot. Well, they did do that. But notice in verse 55 what he says. He says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. There's the chastening hand of the Lord. That's no fun, is it? <laughs> Nobody likes the chastening hand of the Lord. But notice that they didn't drive them out. And where was the command? If there's, if there's one, if there is three verses... 
in the Old Testament that I would encourage you to remember always. It's Deuteronomy chapter 20, and you've heard me say this over and over again. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. Because again, here God is giving the command, and he's not only giving the command, but he's also giving them a reason, the justification for total annihilation of the Canaanites. The command and the justification. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. And he lists them specifically, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And here's the reason, verse 18. Here's the justification for it all. And this is so critical lest they teach you to do according to their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. There it is. There's the command, and there's the justification. It's a hard thing, isn't it? It's a really difficult thing. It's a really difficult thing. that would become a snare to them later on down the road. In fact, it's because of this. Do you understand that it's it's because, though, remember in Judges chapter 2, when I read those first five verses to you in Judges 2, that all the, and, and even the ones we read tonight, they did not drive out the, the inhabitants of the land over and over again. And what was the result of that disobedience? Well, I can tell you two results of that disobedience. One is that the northern ten tribes were taken into captivity in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And why were they taken into captivity? Because of their idolatry. And where did they learn that idolatry? From the inhabitants of the land that they were supposed to drive out, that they let stay in the land, and instead they were more humane than God, and they wanted to do a humanitarian effort, and they wanted to um, put them under slave labor, basically. And then the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they didn't learn the lesson from their sister up north. And then in 606 B.C., we know that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come and take them into captivity. And why were they taken into captivity? You can read the first uh, ten chapters of Jeremiah, and the, the indictment against, of, against Judah is, is tremendous. He's, he told them, he says, you guys didn't learn anything from your brothers in the, in the, in the north were taken into captivity 100 or 50, 175, something like that, nearly 200 years prior. You didn't learn anything. Instead, you did worse. You continued. Because you didn't allow, you didn't kick those inhabitants out, you didn't destroy them. Now they have infected you. Now you've married their daughters. Your sons have married their daughters. Their daughters have married your sons. Everybody's living in this one international house of pancakes together, and boy, is it nice. Every, the war, fire's warm, and everyone's getting along there's the reason, folks. The justification, the commandment of God, and the justification for it was that they would, if they did this, they wouldn't be going through this. Had they been obedient to God, probably none of those things would have happened. Or things would be very different than, they, that, than what we know in history. And where did they learn this from? Do you remember in Joshua chapter 9 when the Gibeonites who were not too far away from Israel when they first crossed over, remember they set up camp that night near Jericho in Gilgal. And there were some men who were spies from a town 
distant, you know, not too far away, they came over and they feigned to be these old travelers that had been traveling for weeks and months and they wore really dirty sandals and really moldy bread and everything. They just, oh, we've been traveling for three months, man, and we're just, we just, we heard about the fame of God and we're just here to serve you. We're just your humble servants. And without even praying, in fact, in Joshua chapter 9, they go through all of this. And it says in verse 14 of Joshua 9, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but notice they did not ask counsel of the Lord. This is where Israel learned. From this very act in Joshua 9, everything after this followed suit. And what, what happened to them? They did not ask counsel of the Lord, so they weren't praying. They didn't ask God about this. God, are we being deceived? Are these men for real? Should we be entering in some kind of agreement with, this, with, this, with these Gibeonites or whoever these people say they are? And they got bamboozled. They believed them. And so Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. You can read the rest of the chapter, but in verse 21 of that Chapter 9, it says, And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. In other words, let them be slave labor. Let them be workers for us. Let them give tribute to us. Does that sound like an echo from what we've been pounding on for a little while here? They put them under tribute. This is where they learned it, right here, I believe. This precedent was set. And now they saw the benefit of it. Wow, we don't have to do anything. Our children, our sons and daughters don't have to get the, cut the wood and bring the water. We've got these guys. Hey, they're not so bad. And now they're cutting the wood for us. Now they're bringing the water for us. This is kind of a cool deal. I'm going to sit in my hammock today, and I'm going to sip my iced tea in the sun underneath the shade of that palm tree. Let those guys do the cutting of the wood. Life is good. But notice, because of their lack of prayer, And it was already, as we're reading tonight in Joshua 16, and we saw it again in in verse 10 of chapter 17, that they didn't drive the inhabitants out, and they learned it, I believe, all the way back here in Joshua Joshua chapter 9. They learned the benefits of not vanquishing the enemy, but compromising and allowing, allowing them to be servants for them. It was like a germ that would ultimately ensnare them. And, and so the, the children of Israel, they, uh, they self-fulfilled the prophecy of verse 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 20. And what was that prophecy <laughs> in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 18? It says, God says, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sinned against the Lord your God. That's exactly what they did. That's exactly what they did. And you know what? We would have probably done the same thing. You know, some people are really hard on the Jews and say, man, they're just a, a, a nasty people and, and they get all indignant against them. But you know what? They're, they're some of the most brilliant people on the earth and they're very smart. God has given them such wonderful skills and abilities. They need Jesus just like we needed Jesus. They're no different than anybody else. They're certainly not the offscouring of the earth as uh, Nazi Germany would have us to believe. Remember back in the 1940s? All the propaganda that Hitler did to make the Jews look like these scoundrels, look like these desert street or these street rats that are running around doing all these evil things. Even the caricatures of the cartoons, they all had them, had these long crooked noses. They, they made them look like the worst people. 
And that's how we won the hearts of the Germans and, and people to, to look at them and go, yeah, they, they really are bad. And you do that long enough, and before you know it, you've got a whole army that wants to annihilate the Jews. And what happened? Nearly six, or six million or more Jews were killed in Holocaust Germany. But they were infected now. Let's go into verse uh, chapter uh, 17. I think we're going to finish with this chapter. It says, the other and So this is the other half-tribe of Manasseh on the west side of the Jordan River. It says, There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. And you can read about uh, Manasseh and uh, Ephraim in Genesis chapter 48, uh, specifically verse 12 through 14. It tells you who the firstborn is. Manasseh was the firstborn. For he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Therefore, he was given Gilead and Bashan. Uh, on, on a map, if you were to look on a map, like the one up we have on the screen here, all that land, you'll see right there where in the land of Gad on the east side of the Jordan River, you'll see that that, that's, that whole mountain range right along the Jordan River is, is the Gilead, Mount Gilead. It's a really long mountain range. And as you go even further north, uh, up past the uh, Sea of Galilee, up in that area is Bashan. And so this was the land uh, uh, that was given to the, uh, the east side, but on the west side uh, it was given to their brothers. In verse 2, and there... And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. For the children of Abiezer, the children of Helech, the children of Azrael, the children of Shechem, the children of Hefer, and the children of Shemidah. These were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. But notice, but Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, he had no sons, but he only had daughters. And these are the names of his dog daughters. Mala, Noah, Hogla, and Milcah, and Tirzah, verse 4. And they came near before Eleazar the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, and before the rulers, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. That only makes sense, right? That's fair. This man only had daughters, so why not give them an inheritance? Because if he had sons, they would certainly get an inheritance. That makes sense, right? That's only fair, and that's right. And so he did. And so ten shares fell to Manasseh, verse 5, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead, and the territory of Manasseh was from Asher to Michmathah that lies east of Shechem, and the border went along south to the inhabitants of En Tapua. Verse 8, Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua... Uh, on the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim. And if you look on a map, you'll see that Ephraim and Manasseh, their land butts up against one another. They have a common border. And so a lot of those uh, cities on each side, within relatively short distance across the border, they, they belong to each other and one belonged to the other. It was kind of that thing. They were very nice uh, people together. <laughs> so, uh, and the border descended from Brook Cana toward, uh, southward to the brook. These cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh, and the border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook, and it ended at the sea. Southward it was Ephraim's, northward it was Manasseh's, and the sea was its border. Manasseh's territory was adjoining Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. You know what I love about the Bible is just the, the intricacy and how God doesn't, he doesn't waste ink on a page. I mean, this is really a, a title deed, if you think of it. 
You know, when you get your house, um, when you go to buy a house, your land is partitioned. You know, the surveyors come out with that little orange tripod or yellow tripod, and they're out there, and they're tweaking their stuff, and they're, they're getting all that done, and they're doing it to give you that land. It's, 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 it's very accurately described in feet and in inches, and on the map, it, it's there, and it's partitioned out precisely. And this is God's record of this land that he gave to his children. It belongs to him, and he gave it to them. It belongs to nobody else but the children of Israel. An everlasting possession, he said, it is theirs. It is theirs. It doesn't belong to Donald Trump. It doesn't belong to even Benjamin, well, by, you know, as a Jew, it belongs to him. But he, no one has the right for that land except for God, and he gave it to the children of Israel. Verse 11, and Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshan and Iblaam and its towns, the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, the inhabitants of Taanach and its towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns, three hilly regions. But notice verse 12, yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined, they were determined to dwell in the land. They could not drive them out. They could not. You know, there are times that because, again, because of decisions that we've made, that those things become more solidified and increasingly difficult to the point where they could not. Maybe there was a point where they did not, but now that time has passed. You remember when God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus? It talks about that it says that, and, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he would not let the people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people go. And there came a point when God says, okay, that's what time it is for you. And then God hardened his heart. And what a horrible thing when you're so bent on your own self-will. God says, okay, I'm going to let you go in this direction. I'm going to teach you a lesson. And if you're willing to hear, you're going to survive this, Pharaoh. But if you're going to be obstinate and you're going to be disobedient, you too will perish. And notice how many opportunities God gave him, just like he gives to us. I'm so glad of the grace of God. Did you know you can't outrun the grace of God? I think about how many times in my youth and up until I was 24 years old that I deserved, I deserved to die. I deserved to be judged for my sin. I deserved to die and go to hell. I deserved it. And I am so glad of God's mercy, aren't you? Maybe many of us in this room can, can attest to that. You know, not every one of you were scoundrels like I was. Uh, maybe you were worse, I don't know. But notice, and it happened when the children of Israel grew strong. Notice, when they grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor. Well, if they grew strong, why did they put them to forced labor? But notice, forced labor, excuse me, but they did not utterly drive them out. And here it is again, the same refrain. It sounds like, you know, amazing grace. And we get to the, the refrain, you know, it, it's just the same thing happening over and over again. The verse should read like this. When the children of Israel grew strong that they finished the job and drove out the Canaanites. But they did not drive them out. So, verse 14, Then the children of Israel, uh, Joseph, which means Ephraim and Manasseh, they speak to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one, one share to inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us up until now? So Joshua answered them. We're just going to read through this, and we'll finish up. If you are a great people, he said, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself, there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, the Rephaim, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But notice, but the children of Joseph said, 
Uh, the mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron. But those who are of Beth Shan and its towns and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is a wooded, although it is wooded, excuse me, you shall cut it down and its farthest extent shall be yours. And notice the command, notice the zeal, notice the faith of Joshua. You know, he never wavered. Notice what he said. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and are strong. Notice the faith of this man. And that's why God, I think, chose him as the man to take Moses' place. From the very beginning, remember when Moses sent Joshua and Caleb into the promised land, 40, some 40 years earlier, prior to this time we're looking at now. When he was 40 years old, Moses told Joshua and Caleb and 10 other guys from the 10 of the other tribes, go into the land, spy it out, and come back and let me know. And 10 of them brought back an evil report, and only Joshua and Caleb were the ones saying, you know what, we can go up and we can take them. We can do it. And you know, had they done that, think of all that had happened in their life as a result of them believing in the ten and not believing in the two. As a result of that, unbelief crept in. And it was a struggle for Israel because of their unbelief. And that's why that whole generation that came out of Egypt, they perished in the wilderness. Those 38 years those 40 years they were in the desert, God made sure that every one of them would perish except for Joshua and Caleb and the younger generation. Every one of the elders who came out, they perished. Because of what? Because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. But notice the zeal of Joshua, even to these men, and certainly knowing that they've messed up. They made this commitment, this covenant with the Gibeonites. Now they're hewers of wood and fetchers of water. They've already gotten into this. Now he's going to tell them, now you guys go and bring back word. And, and we'll look at uh, that when we get into uh, verse 18. Pretty interesting, isn't it? A very happy time, but yet because of disobedience, not willing to take the land. And I think the moral of the story tonight, just to recap everything, is just, you know, when God says to do something, try to resist arguing with him. When he says something in his word, it's good. It's good for you, even though it may hurt a little bit. It may hurt a little bit. Obedience is very rarely ever easy Sometimes it is, but sometimes, most of the time, being obedient means doing something really hard. It's very easy to cave in and do the, just flow with everybody else. But to stand up and make a stand and be obedient takes real courage. It takes faith, doesn't it? And so, how important it is for us to listen to the Lord and obey him. And remember, think of this. Think of the choices that they made going all the way back to Joshua 9 and, and going into Judges 2 in those first five verses, you see how they would not drive out the inhabitants. And it became a snare to them, ultimately leading to their captivity. For the whole entire nation were taken captive 
And so our decisions that we make, are they without prayer? And i got to be honest with you. As I'm sharing this with you tonight, I'm aware of decisions that I make every single day that I really don't stop and say, Lord, is this the right decision? A lot of times it's the hard things that I pray about, but the nonchalant things, mundane things, I very rarely pray about. But do you know that those are just as important? In fact, the culmination of those little decisions lead me in a different trajectory if I'm not careful. So everything is important, really. But we ought not to be under some kind of constraint and so worried about every little, should I brush my teeth now? You know, people get like that. I've met Christians who are so fearful of not being in the will of God that they're paralyzed. They're just like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to mess it up. And it's like, no, you got to, it's just the opposite. Be free, but be a worshiper and trust God can, can fix your path as you go along. So you don't need to worry. You don't need to be frozen in time. Be led by the Spirit. Be in his word and just live your life and live it joyfully and make the decisions that will honor him. And, and you'll find that very easily. You're like that. You're like that. Have you seen those, uh, those situations where a guy's walking through and, 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 and as he walks through an intersection, a car comes flying by and a, a, a plane is coming in and he just happens to turn his head to look over at a sound he heard over here and the jet flies right over his head, smashes into the ground. And then he walks over and there's a manhole right in front of him, but somebody you know falls down in front of him and he steps over them. And he's just like this, he's completely oblivious to anything. He's got this Jesus smile on his face, completely oblivious to anything around him. Destruction all around, bombs going off, smell of napalm in the air. I mean, it's just like, are you serious? You guys are really wondering about my health, aren't you? I've got a very active imagination. Can you see it? I mean, can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you smell it? So let's stand. Let's pray. <laughs> Be encouraged, but be prayerful over every decision. Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray that God, uh, as we have read tonight, Lord, uh, a lot of places, a lot of names of towns and cities, Father, but Lord, we also, uh, if, our, if our ears were open, Father, we, we learn and we can see the, 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 the blessings for obedience. And Lord, we can also certainly see the, the consequences for disobedience. And, and Lord, disobedience that went ahead hundreds of years even, and became a snare for the children of Israel. Father, may every decision that we make, Lord, may we quietly just offer it before you, Lord. We pray that you would guide each one of us, direct our, our thoughts, direct our speech, Lord, direct everything about us, Lord. We want to be in the center of your will, and we want to bring joy to your heart, Father. So have your way with us tonight and tomorrow as we go forth. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.